Listen to God's word. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel when the Egyptians hold, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Oftentimes, things don't work out the way that we would have hoped. And in those moments, we may doubt whether God is even listening. We may doubt if even God exists. In fact, sometimes Christians do exactly what they think God wants them to do, and things don't get better, but they get worse. Uh, Think about the woman who desires to share the gospel with her neighbor. Uh, She loves her neighbor. She cares for her neighbor. And one day, eventually, she desires to share her testimony with her neighbor. And it happens. But the neighbor listens politely, has no interest, only to change the subject. And afterwards, the friendship seems to cool, maybe even dissolve. And I can imagine this woman wondering, Lord, why would you allow this relationship to happen, to, to, to break apart, to not be the same as it used to be? I was just trying to be faithful with the gospel. Or there's the single woman who refuses a man who is not a Christian. Now she's still waiting for the right man, but no one ever calls. And she's wondering, Lord, why would you do this? I'm trying to do the right thing. Or there's the couple who waited to have sex until marriage. But they're unable to conceive. They cry out, Lord, why won't you bless us with a child? 
We remain pure the whole time during our dating period, and now we want a child, while there are so many others who just find them to be inconvenient. There's the employee who tries to do the right thing only to be fired. The mother who does everything she can for her child only to have him or her turn away from the Lord. There's the preacher who sticks to the Bible and preaches the Bible only to have his congregation shrink and grumble. During such times, we want to cry out to God, I did what you told me to do, but God, you are not holding up your end of the bargain. And this is what happened to Moses in these verses of Exodus. Moses had done everything God had commanded him to do. He was going to be the mouthpiece of God. He was going to stand before Pharaoh. He was going to say, let my people go. But of all that happened, it turned out to be a great leap backwards. Obeying God, things didn't get better. They got worse. What do we do in times like this, Christian? Where can we look for encouragement during this time? Well, our passage this morning provides three responses in times of complaint and doubt. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here in Exodus, and you'll recall that Moses has been called by God at the age of 80 to deliver Israel out of Egypt. Moses told Pharaoh to let God's people go, but from there, everything seemed to go south. Not only had Pharaoh refused to let Israel go, but he made things harder. He doubled their workload. He said, you make these bricks without straw. And the setback caused Moses to lose his luster among the people. He is now the CEO that the people no longer wanted. And they are all clamoring for his resignation. The Israelite foreman said, the Lord look upon you and judge. This is almost deja vu for Moses because this happened to him 40 years earlier when he tried to deliver Israel out of Egypt. Both Hebrew and Egyptian alike reject him. It seemed the more Moses obeyed, the worse things got And we learn from this passage this morning three responses when trouble comes from doing what's right. Three responses when trouble comes from doing what's right. First, we see in verses 22 and 23, turn to God. That should be our first response when troubles come. Turn to God. You notice earlier that in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, that the Israelite foreman got into trouble, bloodied and beaten for failing to meet their quotas. They turned to Pharaoh for help. And when that didn't work out, these furious foremen decided that they were going to take it all out on Moses. They turned on Moses. But notice what Moses does in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord. And said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Moses turns to the Lord, and what does he do? He blames him. He attributes God as the ultimate cause of the situation. 
and he is dismayed. He has been told to expect Pharaoh's stubbornness, but he did not anticipate such cruel retribution against the Israelites. Moses basically cries out, God, is this why you sent me? To make things worse, you're doing evil, God. You are wrong. There is a better way to do things than the way you're doing them now. It's not hard to understand why Moses felt so disappointed. Up until the end of chapter 4, everything was going smoothly with Aaron's help. He had performed miraculous signs. The Israelites had responded with belief and worship. Now, just a few days later, everything seems to be in shambles. The people were letting Moses have it. And in his discontent, Moses protests, he complains, and he is certainly guilty of unbelief, of not trusting God here. Moses is certainly guilty of being impatient. He's certainly guilty of thinking that he is somehow more compassionate than God himself. But, but, what does he do here? He turns to the Lord. Maybe in the face of all these critics from Israel, Moses could have just typed out that angry tweet. Maybe he was tempted to just click clack and write that defensive email to send it off to them, give them a piece of their mind. But he doesn't. He stops and he hits delete. And he turns what could have been just a rant into a lament upon the Lord, a lament to the Lord. Moses is in the long tradition of truth-telling and truth-talking in biblical prayer. Abraham, when he was childless, he said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Job, who lost everything, said, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. David, in the Psalms, complains and complains and laments unto the Lord, O Lord. Jeremiah did this when he was jailed for preaching God's word. John the Baptist did this when he was jailed and was wondering whether or not Christ, Jesus was the Christ. And even Jesus himself, in the day of his greatest trouble, when he is upon the cross, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Such questions are not sinful, provided they are asked honestly and faithfully. And Moses, who is confused, rejected, and discouraged by God's apparent withdrawal to the sidelines, by God's seeming unwillingness to be involved in in what's going on with his people, turns to God. You know, when studying this, I wondered why Moses, who almost attributes evil to God, isn't just struck down by lightning right then and there but I realize it's because he's not complaining about God. He's really complaining to God, isn't he? Moses isn't speaking, kind of talking negatively behind God's back, so to speak, but he speaks to God because God is able to handle such searching questions. Critique never brings down God. So the question for us is, who or what do you turn to in times of trouble? In times of despair, when things are not going according to plan, where do you go to? What is your springboard reaction? 
And Google? Maybe I'll find an answer through Google. Or maybe you turn to social media. Or maybe you're ready to text your friend or email the pastor. Maybe you're just going to try to numb it away by exercise and, and Netflix. Before you do any of those things, turn to God. Christian, over and over again, it says that God hears the cries of his people. You who are in a relationship with God, he does not turn a deaf ear to you. He did not turn a deaf ear to Moses. You have a heavenly father who desires and wants to hear your prayers. He sees his own in a very special way. He hears his people with the ear of a husband and a father. You know, he's not going to be like the spouse who, when you ask them a question, they kind of try to multitask on their phone at the same time and doesn't really hear you. Because God is the great multitasker who can hear everyone's prayers and uphold the universe with his hand. And so we must have this impulse that when life is turning us over, to turn over our distresses to God. Especially when you have things unresolved in your hearts. Whether or not God decides to answer your prayer in the way that you would like or questions is not the main idea here. He's certainly not afraid of your questions. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I simply ask you this before we move on. Where do you turn to in times of trouble? Where do you turn? Who do you turn to? Will you ever turn to God in times of trouble? When troubles come, we ought to turn to God. And second, when troubles come, know God's character. That's the second thing we see in these next couple verses. Turn to God and know God's character. Moses presents his accusations before God, yet notice that God in his answer never responds to these charges that Moses has. In one sense, he ignores it. Look, in chapter 6, verse 1, God does not appear shocked in the least by Moses' speech. He does not reprimand Moses for being irresponsible and having these almost blasphemous accusations against him. Instead, he says to Moses, just wait until you see what I will do with Moses. With Pharaoh, I mean. And beginning in verse 2, you see God's main response in chapter 6. I wonder if you saw that when we were reading through this passage it's mentioned four times in this, these verses, in verse 2, 6, 7, and 8. God says, I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. God's response begins and ends with this statement. Over and over, God essentially says, this is the most important and fundamental issue before you. You need to know who I am. God wanted Moses to understand that the answer to all his problems was to be found in him. I mean, isn't it interesting in this hour of crisis, God comes with a message about himself. It seems that Moses could, you know, if he could only know God, somehow it would be all the answers that he would need. Now, friends, if that, came, if that kind of response came from any man or woman in this world, we would think that that is the height of arrogance, right? You have some problems? Well, let me tell you about myself. 
You know, we all know the story of the, about the guy who takes the girl out on a date and he keeps talking about his work and then his life and then pop, and all his projects. And then he says, oh, enough about, enough about work. Let's talk about me. You know, that's self-centered, right? But when God begins the work of salvation in his people, he always begins by revealing himself. So God says in verse 2, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty. That's the Hebrew word there is El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And then in verse 4 and 5, he starts kind of reiterating kind of the things that he said earlier in chapter 3. That he's going to be, he has established his covenant. He will give them a land. And he has heard the groaning of his people. Now, how are we to understand these opening verses of, of this paragraph in, in verses 2 and 3? When it, he, because God seems to imply that he's never revealed his special name, Yahweh, to them. But actually, when you read through the earlier books before Exodus, in Genesis, the people are calling upon the name of Yahweh all the time. They are using that divine name, Yahweh. It's on the lips of the people. But I think the point is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know this personal name at all. It's not that they didn't know this personal name at all. It's not that they didn't know the sound of the name. It's that they didn't know the significance of the name. They might have known God as, oh, he's El Shaddai, God Almighty, a strong, powerful, sovereign, sufficient. But they did not know God as Savior, as the saving one, the redeeming one. They knew the name of God intellectually, but not experientially. They knew the God who makes promises, but not the one who keeps promises. And, and the rest of Exodus is really going to reveal all of that. You know, 20 years ago, I, I served in youth ministry. And those were the days when Friday nights were all lay-led. And so I would work during the week. And, and then uh, on Friday nights, I would drive to church. And I would serve in the youth ministry. And I would teach the youth. During that time, there were a couple of junior high boys that I was ministering to that absolutely loved basketball. They couldn't get enough of basketball. And so me, never played a lick of basketball in my life, said, okay, let's hang out and let's play basketball. So after youth group on Fridays, I would drive them to Stanford University to play pickup basketball. And let me tell you, when we showed up on college campus, nobody wanted us on their team. But little did they know that the scrawny junior high boy that was with me was Jeremy Lin. I mean, they knew his name was Jeremy, but they didn't know him. If they had known who he was, it would have made all the difference. They didn't know he was about to torch all of them on the court. They didn't know that he would one day set the NBA on fire. If they did know him, they would have said, I want that kid on my team. And this was Mo Moses and Israelites' fundamental need. They needed to know God. And they needed to know his character. Because then they would be at ease. They needed to know God sees their plight and has a purpose to deliver them. 
This is our fundamental need. You need to know our Lord, not casually, not just a few things about him. When we get into trouble, usually what we want is some type of plan to get out of our troubles. If you're anything like me, you want something very practical, very nuts and bolts. You want the, the, the decision tree to know exactly what you need to do next so that you can get out of the mess that you are in. But here God says, Moses, let me tell you about myself. I am. I am the God who has a plan. I am the God who makes the covenant and keeps the covenant. I am the God who hears. I am the God who will bring you into the land like I promised. I am the God who remembers. That's who I am. You know I am? And that is what God wants to tell us, that when we want a strategy, a way out, God wants us to know who he is. When despair threatens us, to drown your faith, cling to the lifeline of God's character. You know, strategies to reclaim your wayward child. The best plans after losing your job. Those are mere secondary things. They are not of first importance because nothing other than the trust in God's perfect character and faithfulness will, event, will get you through. Do you know him? Do you know him? I imagine that all of us in this room and online and in the overflow room, we know the name of Jesus. Some of you have heard that name. You've maybe heard it used as a curse word. Maybe you've heard it growing up in the church. Maybe you hear it from singing songs and Sunday schools. You know the stories of Jesus, but do you know Jesus in such a way that when life crumbles all around you, your heart is firm and steady, resolute, and unmoved upon him. Come to Jesus today and cry out with all your complaints and cry out to know him, to know his name. His name is Jesus because he will save his people. In times of trouble, turn to God. Know God's character. And third, our last point this morning, trust God's promises. You notice in verse 6 that there is a shift now in the language. Instead of addressing Moses, he tells Israel that they are to about what he tells Moses what he is to say to Israel. And it too begins with, I am the Lord. But instead of looking to the past, he now looks to the future. What does he say? He says, I will. Do you notice that? Seven times he says it. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you out to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land I will give it to you. God piles up promise after promise after promise, doesn't he? And these seven promises of God to Israel essentially fall into four categories. Freedom, redemption, adoption, and a home. That's what he promises them. Do you see that? God says, I will bring you freedom. I will deliver you. That's what he says to them. God says, I will redeem you. I will restore my relationship with you. God says, I will adopt you, meaning you will be my people and I will be your God. It's not just, I'm not saving you just to free you from some political oppression. I'm saving you. 
to be in a relationship with me. And God says, I will give you a home. I'll bring you into the land of, for your possession. Church, think of these promises that are given to Israel and think of the greater promises that are given to us in Christ. And when trouble comes from following God, turn to him, know him, let God's promises pour over your heart. It is in these moments you need to ransack the scriptures and know how the scriptures and the promises of God address the exact problem you have. To hear in your heart when God promises, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, if you're not a Christian this morning and you're here and you're hearing these promises to Israel about freedom and redemption and adoption and a home, you might be thinking, well, that was to Egypt, but what does that mean to me? You might wonder what it has to do with you, but these promises are actually heightened for you in Jesus. See, all of this Exodus story is ultimately pointing somewhere. It's pointing ultimately to what Jesus will do in his life and death and resurrection. Think about this. God promises you freedom. The Bible says that we are by nature slaves, slaves to sin. All of us are rebels against God, alienated from God. But in God's mercy, he promises to set us free from the burden of our sin. Jesus says, I will make your yoke easy and your burden light. And God promises you redemption. In God's mercy, he sent his son Jesus to redeem us. Jesus said, I will redeem you from the power of sin. From the penalty of sin. Because I give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to earth to live for us, to die for us, and redeem us with an outstretched arm. And with great act of judgment. That great act of judgment is not upon you, but it is upon Christ who on the cross stood in our place and bore the wrath of God we deserved. This is what Christ's death accomplished. This is why we sing about Jesus. But Christ didn't stay dead. He rose again and took a seat at God's right hand in power and glory. And now he commands each of us, turn from our sins and trust in Jesus and his work upon the cross and you will be saved. And God promises you adoption. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the promise is that you do not receive the spirit of slavery. But you will be called sons and daughters, children of God, with a relationship with him. God promises you a home. If you trust in Christ, God will take you to himself to dwell with him in perfect and unbreakable intimacy forever. That will never end. Jesus will give you your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you must turn to him. You must know him. And you must trust his promises for salvation. Perhaps you're even struggling to listen right now to me. <laughs> and, these are, and it's hard. It's not easy to trust in the promises of God here, of salvation of eternal life, of joy forevermore. 
Well, the same could be said of Israel. What God said to Moses should have been wonderful news to them, that most people would have been really happy to get it. But the sad truth is that when the Israelites heard the message of salvation by God's free grace, they wanted nothing to do with it. Look at verse 9. One commentator mentions that the I wills of salvation lead to the I won't from Israel. Moses spoke to Israel and they said, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. It is on the one hand, exceptionally sad. And on the other hand, amazingly tender and realistic. I will, I will, I will, says the Lord. And they say, I won't. They could not hear the promises of God because of their pain. They could not hear the promises of God because of their suffering. It's not that the hard labor made their unbelief excusable, but it makes their unbelief understandable. Perhaps you know what this is like. Perhaps there are some of you online in this room right now where you feel like you're under it, where you feel like you're just treading water, trying to catch your breath. And when you're trying to catch your breath, it's really hard to listen to a sermon. When things don't turn out the way that you hope, when things don't get better but worse, it is hard to look up from the overwhelming burdens we bear. But I encourage you, I exhort you to turn to God because he alone is sufficient to bear your problems. Hope in God, turn to him and know him and trust him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful for the honesty that it portrays for us that we can turn to you in our moments of despair, in our moments of darkness, in the dark night of our souls, we know that the only ray of light is not to turn to the things of this world, but, but to turn to you and to the hope that you give, the sure hope that you give, and to the promises that you render to your people. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be the inclination of our hearts as a church. We pray that even in this moment, that those who do not yet know you would turn to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.